Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hi, Changemaker. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding, and I am here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and advance mission. Now, that's a mission of the nonprofit that you work at or the many nonprofits that you work with if you are a funding or grant writing freelancer. As I'm recording this now, we are on episode number 78. Very, very exciting. We're almost 280 episodes recorded. And every week we're getting, you know, over a thousand downloads. So you guys are listening. So thank you so much for turning, tuning in and being a part of the grant writer and funding kind of tribe that we have here. I really appreciate getting all of your questions and just interacting with you guys on social media, online, and just in different ways. It's so cool to see all the different things that you guys are doing out there in the world, advancing change, really, and having a tremendous positive impact in the world. So you guys rock. Really appreciate you all. Anyways, this is actually going to be broadcasted in July, the first week of July. And I kind of wanted to give a little bonus. We are doing a rebroadcast. And because we're going to be talking all about needs and strengths assessment and different kind of data capturing in July. All right, I will make it as fun as possible. I promise you. <laughs> all right, so, but just very tangible things because I know you all, if you're working on a grant or if you're working on a crowdfunder or if you're working on a solicitation for a fundraiser event, you know, all of these different types of things, anything that you really need to do to get money and funding in the door will require that you have data, right? So the more data, and not really like you need 10 pages of data, but the more specific data you can have, the more updated data that you can have really helps with your needs. It demonstrates what your needs are and it also just supports your project. So you really need to have this. It's, you know, writing flowery stories doesn't really help in the funding world so much. Yes, story is always good. It's always important. But having the data to back it up is where I see there's a huge weakness in a lot of uh, different organizations and even grant writers, right? They, they're not really sure how to gather the right kind of data. But let me tell you, if you are a nonprofit and you have the right data, you're really going to be able to elevate your projects and really get more funding. And the same goes for you for being freelance grant writers or funding consultants. The more data you have in your toolbox, the easier it's going to be when you have similar clients that serve, you know, similar areas, right? So for example, I wrote a grant last year, right? And I had to do all of this research, gather all this information, and I'm writing another grant right now. And I'm able to pull some of that information, even though it's totally different. It's a totally different grant, right? But I'm able to pull a lot of that same information because it's still pretty updated. It was only a year ago and I'm able to gather all of that. So so that saves me on time. And I also, the other thing too, is I can quickly know where to go, right, right where I went before to get my data. I can go back and I can see, or are there any updates and update accordingly, right? So just being able to do that really 
is a time saver. And it's also something that brings value to the table because all of a sudden my clients, they know they don't need to do all that. They know how much work it takes and they know I can do that. So that's something very, very valuable that you can bring to the table as a grant writer is knowing how to do the proper research and having those things, those systems kind of already built and some of your data already built. But we're gonna look at so many different ways of data capturing throughout the month. Like I said, we are gonna rebroadcast our needs and strengths assessment today. And it's pretty funny because as you (laughs) listen to that, um, I started listening to it. I was like, oh, you can hear the roosters in the background. So please don't mind the roosters in the background. But before we get into that today, I wanted to go ahead and just go ahead and shout out a review on iTunes. Really, really excited. Let's see, this is from ZM Diana. And she says, practical information for all grant seekers. This podcast offers much knowledge for grant writing. Both Holly's podcast and website contains much practical information. Thank you so much, ZM Diana, for that wonderful review. I really appreciate it. And I would just also like to ask all you guys listening out there, please leave a review on iTunes if you're listening and you enjoy this. If you follow and subscribe to Grant Writing and Funding on iTunes or on any of your podcast players, please do leave a review as this does really help other people find the podcast. And plus, it gives me affirmation, right, guys? All right, so I love it. So thank you so, so much much. So I have a little bonus before we do the rebroadcast. And what that basically is, is looking at halfway through the year. We are about six months, right? We're going into the half of the year here right now in July. And I just want to ask you if you have really had the opportunity or given yourself the space to reflect on what you've achieved so far, what you want to achieve for the rest of the year, and if it's in alignment with your vision and your mission. So, you know, if you really want a good outlay of that, we also have an an episode that I recorded at the beginning of the year to talk about your best year ever, right? And that gives you a downloadable and everything to track how to outline your entire year. So if you would like to listen to that, you can definitely jump on board. That is episode 57, Your Best Year Ever, How to Increase Funding, Eliminate Burnout, and Avoid Competition. So you can definitely check that out. But just as you're halfway through the year, I would really like you guys to think about, okay, let's give ourselves a little bit of space and really think about what have, you know, what have I accomplished so far? And if you're working for a nonprofit, what has your nonprofit accomplished, right? So have you, and then to look back at, maybe you don't have it developed already if you didn't do your best year ever, but if you did listen to that podcast and do the downloadable, look back at that and really analyze, you know, are you in, in alignment with what you said you wanted to do? If not, why not? And if not, you know, does it really matter? Do you need to get back on track? And if you do need to get back on track, how are you going to do that, right? You basically have another six months of the year, so you have time still, but it's a nice time right now to evaluate that. And even personally, like, you know, some of you know, like, Holly, when are you ever going to get that book out? We're waiting for it still (laughs) for the revised grant writing book. And yes, I did have that on my plate to do more in the spring, but then I had things come up, right? I had a lot, lot come up and I had to push that back. And that is my summer project right now. One of them is revising that book and getting it back out there. So I had to kind of look 
look at, you know, what is my overall vision for my company and for what I want to do, you know, my purpose in life? And, um, you know, am I in line with that? Am I am I falling out of order? Because if we just go with the emergencies of every day and the busyness of every day, we're never really going to achieve, you know, those big audacious goals, right? So it is important to give yourself some space just to reflect on that and to say, hey, am I where I said I was going to be and wanted to be? And if not, why not, right? If not, how can I get back on track? Or if I am, awesome. What else do I need to do then for the rest of the year to accomplish my overall 2019 goal? So please do take that time. If you have not heard that podcast, please go back. It is 57 again, uh, episode 57, your best year ever. And you do have a downloadable. So if you have not done that, it's not too late. Go ahead and do it. Go ahead and draft the, what's rest of 2019. So you're really ahead of the game. And you could even do 2020 at this point in time, really get far ahead and be set and ready to go. But anyways, I just wanted to kind of drop that in there as we are halfway through the year. It's important to evaluate, you know, is your nonprofit doing all the fundraising? that you had scheduled? You know, is everything on track? If you're in a grant writing business, are you securing the clients that you wanted to secure? Why not? So really important to go ahead and reflect on that. Okay, so that is it on my bonus part. And we're going to go ahead and get into the rebroadcast of Strengths and Needs Assessment. And like I said, this was recorded before, but I'm going to head. It is one of the most popular episodes that we've had, actually. So I wanted to go ahead and really break it down more. So I'm going to go ahead and rebroadcast what we had before today. And then for the rest of July, I will be talking about different types of needs and strengths assessments and different types of data capturing um, that you can do. So it's going to be really exciting. All right, guys, as always, send me an email, holly at grantwritingandfunding.com for any questions. And please, once again, do leave a review on iTunes. All right, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Here you go. First off, we really need to look at what the needs are and assessing the needs and the strengths to really identify the best projects moving forward. So today we are going to talk about how to conduct a needs and strengths assessment. We're going to talk about the different types, the different methodologies, and the designs. I'm not going to go too techy or nerdy into any of this. There are other resources that I can definitely link in the show notes as far as other places you can go to get some samples and everything, but I'm going to talk about it definitely on how it applies to you as a nonprofit and when you're going to go ahead and do some projects. And this will give you some great information to really understand what it is and some options to move forward. All right, so here we go. So how to conduct the needs and strengths assessment. Projects. The very word makes some nonprofits scurry around and try to develop something trivial out of thin air to look like they're doing something, or sadly, to develop something that they may not even need just because there's grant funding out there for something that they don't need. All right, the former is referred to as draining the money, and the latter is coined chasing the money. And just as a side note, you might hear some roosters in the background. It's pretty early this morning while I'm recording this, but so, you know, they're a nice little uh, addition to the series. All right. So before you even get the projects, though, you need to make sure your nonprofit has a strong and clear mission and vision, right? And we've talked about that. They've conducted a SWOT analysis as a strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats uh, analysis, have reviewed lessons learned, all right? What worked, what didn't work last year and the years before, You have your SMART objectives and goals, and remember that specific, measurable, achievable, 
relevant, it's based out there. I guess it is a little early. <laughs> relevant and time bound. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please refer back to the other podcasts because each podcast will break down each one of those. So you can be like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for projects now. If you jump into projects before all of this, then you might have to redevelop your project several times, several meaning like up to 20. So you don't really want to do that. You want to make sure you're clear. You take the time to do the things that you need to set in place, especially getting that strong mission and vision, guys, because then you're going to be so clear. You're actually going to save so much time in the long run. All right. So now you're in a great place in your strategic planning after you've done all those things, right, to actually identify the best projects that will support your mission and vision and meet the needs that your nonprofit addresses for your target demographic. So should you jump on grants.gov and see what the federal government is funding so that you can develop projects around where the money is? Honestly, do not do that, okay? (laughs) First, develop your projects that align with your needs and your mission and your vision. Then go grant hunting, all right? We will get into more grant specifics after the strategic planning segment, but don't dismiss how important it is to first get all your ducks in a row. Otherwise, even if you do get that funding, even if you do win that grant, you may not be able to sustain it or meet the objectives. Believe me, I've seen those organizations that just chase the money and some of them do get the grants awarded, but that is not necessarily a good thing. I have seen organizations give back money to funding sources because they cannot meet the objectives due to the project never being aligned with their mission and vision or meeting their beneficiaries' needs. All right, guys, so this is really important. That's where the good old business plan comes into play, all right? So really what we're doing here is we're developing a business plan for your nonprofit. Um, The secret, though, is if you've been following the strategic planning series, you've already developed a chunk of your business plan. But before you start listing your projects and dumping a bunch of money into them, let's stop, take a breath, do a needs and strengths assessment. I know one of you just swore and the other one rolled their eyes. I know you're itching to get out there to get grants. But if you really want your project to succeed and not restart it, like I said, up 20 times, then this step is vital. All right, so let's get into it. Needs and strengths assessment. What is it? First, you need to identify the needs and strengths that your beneficiaries or target demographic face, right? Many nonprofits and organizations only utilize a needs assessment. You might have heard that more. You might say, oh, this is a mouthful. It's a needs and strengths assessment, right? And here's the difference. Okay, so... A needs assessment to understand, they want to understand the challenges and be aware of what projects are actually needed, but they leave out the vital strengths part. Savvy, productive nonprofits implement a needs and strengths assessment to identify the particular barriers and strengths for their beneficiaries or target priority. The difference between the two is that the straight up needs assessment is only focused on the challenges and lack of resources. This approach does not take into account the strengths in the community and what is working. Why is this important? Well, when you know the positive aspects of what works in a community, you know what to leverage and grow. This is approach, it's more solution oriented and reduces risk of coming up with designs that might not work to solve problems. All right, so for example, a needs assessment, just a straight up needs assessment, might just be a survey listing all the barriers that your beneficiaries face. So you are still kind of in the dark of what could work. Sure, you know what you need, but you still do not have a clear picture of what might work. A need and strengths assessment may also include this part when you actually include the strengths part, right? It may also include questions to find out what strengths exist in the community 
or for the individual or target population, right? And possibly op have open-ended questions for focus groups to create a platform for brainstorming solutions. So when you're actually kind of approaching the strengths too, you're saying, ah, I see this part works. That's what's really helping you. And if you only had the needs, you might not have ever even known what any of the strengths are. You're still in the dark. You're still kind of like, I'm going to create something. And it really might not work still. Just because you know the needs doesn't mean you know the solution. But when you see, okay, I see this is what's working or this is what would be helpful for you. So now I have a better understanding of what may possibly already be going on, what's needed, what's actually helpful, what I can leverage, what I can build, what I can grow. It's a lot more tangible. All right, so duplication of projects. Let's go there for a second. And Barbara Grizzuti Harrison says, there are no original ideas. There are only original people. And I love this. Another item that might manifest through your needs and strengths assessment while you're doing it could be that there are already other nonprofits doing projects that you think are needed. Let's face it, just because you thought of a project doesn't mean the same type of project isn't already out there. I've seen this happen a lot. I've seen people, I have a great idea. This is what's needed. I'm going to develop this. And I'm like, don't you know so-and-so is doing that down the street already? Just, you know, just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not out there. I see that a lot. It's about working together, collaborating, and knowing what where the gaps are, right? You may find out that another nonprofit is already facilitating a service or project that would meet the needs of your community, but maybe your beneficiaries face transportation barriers in getting there. That information would be very important as you could then see if it would be more efficient for your organization to conduct similar services in your geographic area, right, dismissing the transportation needs, or if providing transportation to existing services in other areas would be more beneficial and economical. So here you're going to get some information, especially when you look at the strengths. They might say, you know what, this is great. There's these services, but they're in so-and-so county, so we can't get there. So what's the barrier then? So here you're identifying other projects that might already be going on, things that you can leverage, things that you, you might have to duplicate in your region, right, or for your specific demographic, but you can leverage these other places. All right, the methods. Here we're getting into the nitty gritty now. All right, a needs and strengths assessment may take many different forms depending on your resources, meaning your time, money, and the number of people you have working on this. Typical methods include written or online surveys, focus groups, observations, testimonials, phone surveys, and so forth. But altogether, there are similar designs as the end results of finding out what the needs and strengths are are the same, right? The characteristics include, one, a preset list of questions, two, a predetermined sample of the number and types of people to answer these questions, and that's been chosen in advance, so you, you know who you're going to go survey, right, or who you're going to go ask questions. Three, the results of the survey are utilized for a call to action of actually addressing the needs and leveraging the strengths, so what are you going to do with the results, right? Four, these uh, results can be shared on your website or with partners. Five, these results can also support grants or other funding requests. So doing a needs and strengths assessment obviously are able to really articulate the best project for your patient that's needed. But 
you're also able to use this information to support showing your need and using it to support for writing grants or even getting corporate sponsors to come on board saying, hey, we did this survey of you know 300 people and this is what they said, da, 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 this is what we need. It really gives a lot of credibility and validity to your project, to your need, and to your project, right? To really, to fund it. So conducting a needs and strengths assessment will really help your nonprofit to be credible among partners, provide support when applying for project funding from funding sources, and enhance relationships with your beneficiaries. Because you're actually going out there and asking them, hey guys, what do you need? What are your barriers? What are some solutions? And they have a voice, right? (laughs) It's pretty cool. So how often do organizations think that they know what their beneficiaries need, but they've never asked, and they develop a project that only fails, then the staff become discouraged and blame it actually on the beneficiaries. You guys didn't take advantage of this great project we created. What's wrong with you? (laughs) All right. Ouch. Yeah, that happens. All right. And that isn't necessarily the case at all, because maybe the beneficiaries were like, well, you know, that sounds good, but it doesn't really work for us. That's really not what we need. And it's really not a solution. So just because it sounds great, I've seen this on mass scales. I've seen I've seen this in countries where they go to develop huge projects and for entire communities and it just falls apart because they've never done the needs and strengths assessment. They've never gone in and said, Hey guys, what do you actually need? What do you think will work? What's already working? They've never done this. They just come in with these grandiose ideas, especially, you know, from Western kind of Um, mentalities and go into other cultures and try to implement them and it does not work. So this is very important. I mean, yes, on a huge country scale, but even in your community for your specific beneficiaries. Understanding needs and strengths is vital in formulating projects. Do not assume you know what is needed without conducting an assessment. We all know what assume stands for. Rather, find out what people need and what they find useful. But Holly, I don't have the money. All right. Conducting a needs and strengths assessment does not need to cost a small fortune. Sure, extensive research can cost quite a bit of money, but finding out basic needs and strengths does not need to entail hiring a survey consultant for $50,000 or more. Sure, you can do that, but you don't have to. The assessment can be as simple as drafting together some questions, then sitting in a group with your beneficiaries and asking them the questions and recording it. You could even draft out the questions and send out the survey through SurveyMonkey, which is free for less than 10 questions, or through Google Docs, which is free with unlimited questions and includes super cool graphs with the end results. With summaries and individual results, it's super cool. I actually use that and I find it very useful. You can definitely go as simple or as complex as you want. Some people actually write grants just to do these assessments, and they they are funded through grants. You could totally do that too, and then you could get all fancy and hire your, you know, your PhDs and all of that. I mean, it's really up to you with what you want to do, where you're at, where your organization is at. But it can be simple. It doesn't need to cost a small fortune. All right, what questions? What am I even supposed to ask in my needs and strengths assessment? Well, first you will want to identify what you want to find out, right? (laughs) So as you come together as a board or as, you know, top level executives or, you know, that portion, whoever is going to be doing this needs and strengths assessment, what do you guys want to find out? For example, if diabetes is a huge epidemic in your community, you might want to find out what types of diabetes are the most prevalent, what projects would be best developed to prevent or assist individuals with diabetes. Some questions could just include the basics of what types of diabetes do you have? 
What is your age? What is your biggest challenge with disease maintenance? What is the biggest strength in the community to support that disease maintenance? You can look at all these different kinds of questions, right? But let me tell you, before you go large scale and survey hundreds or thousands of people, go ahead and test out your survey with a smaller group. For example, I was conducting a survey for diabetics and I had to scrap some of the initial surveys. A question on the survey was, what type of diabetes do you have? And the answers I had, so I had preset answers, were A, type 1, B, type 2, C, gestational, when pregnant. All right, so I was like, okay, if I'm going to survey diabetics, I kind of want to get what it is. But I had an overwhelming number of people taking the survey that told me when they were taking it, they kind of looked up at me and they said, I know I've been diagnosed by a doctor, but I don't know what kind I have. So I this actually revealed a lot of information just in itself because it wasn't just one person. It was it was quite a it was very many people that actually kind of said this to me, and so it really revealed the need in education for diabetes. But I also had to go redo the question on the survey and the answers and include a fourth answer not sure, right? So first, do try out a small sample size to account for any articulations that may be needed in your questions or answers if you have those preset answers. All right, and and leading into that, (laughs) should I have open-ended questions or preset answers? What should I do? How is, you know, the, the kind of design? Well, the survey design is an internal process. Some surveyors think that preset answers skew data and are misleading since they're actually providing some answers and it's kind of more of a in a box, right? what the results will be. But other surveys have an idea of what the needs and strengths are and believe that preset answers will then focus and provide the best results. It really is a no-brainer that preset answers will lead to a survey taking less time to complete for the person who's actually filling it out. And then on the other side, open-ended questions may result in answers being so varied that you have no real way forward. So I mean, there's pros and cons to both of this. Sometimes there's a little bit of a mix. Uh, Often, like, you see, okay, so back to the what type of diabetes do you have? The other thing is um, you could put in here A, type 1, B, type 2, C, gestational, D, not sure, E, other, and then a line for them to fill out what that might be. And you could do that almost with nearly every question. If they wanted to add something, you kind of have information right there for them to add. So another way you can do a survey is through a Likert scale. And this is the one that has from the least or greatest or from the weakest or strongest. So an example might be answer how true this question is by circling one answer or check marking one area. One, my family supports my lifestyle change with diabetes. Uh, And then there's strongly, somewhat strongly, neutral, somewhat weak, weakest. You know how they kind of have that. So you kind of have like more of a scale. So, and, and that, that's definitely a way you can do a survey too. You don't need these preset answers necessarily, but it's more about, you know, from greatest to uh, least or from weakest to strongest, that sort of thing. So in any case, you don't want to jump around too much by alternating design. For example, if you use preset answers, then consistently use this approach. You can use one as open-ended all the time. That's absolutely fine. But if you're intermixing the Likert scale with the preset questions, like every other question, it's going to be really confusing to the person who's taking the survey. So you kind of want to have some consistency, absolutely. All right, so that's real short on that, but we're going to jump over to focus groups now. So this is another way that you can get information, too, on your needs and your strengths assessment. So I often look at surveys like the above that we just talked about as quantitative information because you can really pull numbers. You can pull hard numbers from that, right? 33% said this, you know, 
70% are type 2 diabetic, blah, blah, blah. It's very easy to pull up those kind of hard numbers. But focus groups are different. I look at those as qualitative information. And that's where you really get a lot more discussion. You get more brainstorming. And I really like to do both surveys and focus groups because I believe that having both information is fantastic. Okay, so for focus groups, it is best to ask between three to six open-ended questions. You don't want to ask 20 questions, right? And then it gets really long. It gets kind of far out there. You want to keep it very focused. And then, of course, have these open-ended questions. Allow the participants to freely share information. This is where you don't really want to, as a facilitator, you don't want to say, well, what if, you know, isn't this a barrier? Isn't that? You don't really want to throw those things out. You want to keep it more open and have it more organic. This is great because talking and discussing will usually lead to a much deeper conversation than filling out a survey. I mean, it's great to have the surveys and conduct a focus group. Focus groups can be conducted at cafes or public areas. And, you know, you can have it kind of like off even if you have, oh my gosh, there's this great cafe here that they had a private room. And those are great too because it's a public place, but you have a nice quiet area where you can really focus and people can have that confidentiality. But you want it casual. I find casual focus groups are a little bit nicer. And you can definitely have it if your nonprofit has a building, you have a conference room, you can have it there, absolutely. But sometimes... Sometimes people don't feel as comfortable to really open. So sometimes public places are a little bit better if you have a private area. Okay. You could also call your local community college or university and see if you, they would let you rent or borrow a room. Um, you know, be like, hey, we'll share our results with you, you know, so, but you do want to keep these confidential. I think, um, I mean, you can, you can definitely have people sign a form and see if they're interested in actually sharing their information or being confidential, you want to give them that kind of that choice. But it's nice to have this conversation in a neutral place to allow for a natural flow. Having about five to eight people, even eight's kind of a lot. It's a good amount of people. When you get more than that, some will dominate the conversation and not everybody will talk and they'll kind of feel like it's a waste of their time or they won't feel acknowledged or valued. So you do want to kind of keep it smaller and, you know, and have that facilitation where you allow everyone to speak. You can always conduct a blend of surveys and focus groups to get both the quantitative and qualitative information, like I said. And you see, it doesn't have to be really uh, difficult, you know, but you're getting the information. You're talking to people, you're going out there and you're saying, hey, what are your barriers? What are your strengths? How can we serve you? What, you know, what do we, what can we do? And you will get the best projects this way. All right, now let's quickly talk about incentives. (laughs) All right, so incentives is a hard one. Do you provide incentives for people taking the survey, such as pens, or you could have other nonprofits wag, gift certificates, or a chance to enter a raffle? Some people say this will skew data as you may get people filling out the surveys just to get the incentive. While this may be correct, you will also get an exponential number of people filling out the surveys compared to not having incentives. Like, for real. I do believe in providing incentives, not just because it also increases the number of people taking the surveys, but also because it provides an exchange or a thank you for someone's time, right? So while we all may believe we are generally nice people and very polite, we may like really find out our true selves and how we react to people who call us on the phone and ask us to take a survey. Click, right? How many times? Click. Oh my gosh. All right. So if you are a surveyor, you will find out how people really are. 
<laughs> Believe you me, it can take some major hits on the self-confidence if you are surveying random people in public. I'm just putting that there as a side note. All right. Uh, incentives can help break this wall. People are willing to give up their time to give you the information. And on the other hand, I mean, not everybody's rude. Believe me. Okay. I, I've been out there doing a lot of random surveys in the last couple months. When you're just targeting your beneficiaries and you know them, it's a lot easier. It really is. But even having incentives, it's still nice just to say, hey, man, thanks for your time. But out there in public, it can be pretty hairy. But some people out there, you'll always get this handful that really appreciate you asking them their opinion, and they will be true fans of your nonprofit after they fill out that survey. They know that they have a voice, and this is powerful. So it's great. All right. So sample size. How many people should you actually survey, right? Like many things in this article, there are different views. And this one is on sample size. Based on the Dillman method, uh, Dillman from 2008, a sampling size of 6% is an appropriate indicator of the entire base population. This is typically accepted as a good sample size, 6%, right? So example, according to the Department of Guam Public Health and Social Services, 12% of the adult population on Guam have diabetes. So say the entire adult population is 100,000 people, then 12% would be 12,000 people who have diabetes. And then of those 12,000 people, a 6% sample size would amount to 720 people. So that would be your target number to say, hey, we're going to go ahead and survey that many people to get a real indicator of you know, the needs and barriers for that population. Of course, this isn't set in stone. There are other sampling size percentages, but you will want to define your target number and your ben who you're actually going to survey and go out there and do it. Once you have all of this information, it really is important and it provides a great framework and say, okay, what do we need to do now? What project do we need to do? And it might just affirm what project you already thought was needed, right? Usually there's a little twist in there somewhere and a little more ideas. It really does. But sometimes, you know, you're like, yeah, we, we pretty much knew that was needed. And this just gave us the verification that it was. And so why did we waste all this time doing it? We already knew. Because you need that information. You need those kind of numbers. You need to back it up with research, um, especially when you're going after funding sources. But also just to kind of show. You can put it on your website. This is why we're doing this. You're going to get donors involved because you're going to have this research behind you. You're going to be able to share this with your beneficiaries to say, hey, guys, this is what you, you wanted. This is what you needed. And this is what you said what worked and what didn't work. And you're going to get more buy-in from everybody. So this is really important. And then from here, it's really going to be easy for you to be say, to say then, okay, let's design a project. And that's what we're going to talk about next time, guys. So back to needs and strengths assessment. Please do this. Like I said, it doesn't have to be super complex. It doesn't need to take like years and years. It can be done in, you know, several months. I mean, you want to maybe up to six months just to do all the planning and to get out there to get all the information. And you can conduct a great report. You can also go through uh, IRB approval if you want to go through your college so you can really use it, this information, even more prevalent. I hope you're all doing fantastic. See you later. Bye-bye. Do you want to join the Changemaker Tribe and get courses, downloadable checklists, samples of awarded grants, behind-the-scenes live Q&A with myself and the tribe, and discounts on grant services? Be sure to join the Changemaker membership at www.grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash membership. Thank you for listening to this grant writing and funding podcast. I hope you've enjoyed your time. For more questions... 
email Holly at holly at grantwritingandfunding.com or visit www.grantwritingandfunding.com. 